Welcome to the Sales Enablement Society, Stories from the Trenches, where enablement practitioners share their real-world experiences. Get the scoop on what's happening inside sales enablement teams across the global SES member community. Each segment of Stories from the Trenches share the good, the bad, and the ugly practices of corporate sales enablement initiatives learned, what worked, what didn't work, and how obstacles were eliminated by corporate teams and leadership. Sit back, grab a cold one, and join host Paul Butterfield for casual conversations about the wide and varied profession of sales enablement, where there is never a fits-all solution. Hello, and welcome back to Stories from the Trenches, the Sales Enablement Society podcast, where we bring together sales enablement practitioners from all over the world, and we talk about what's working, what's not working, and you want to talk about a time to be in sales enablement, this is an interesting one, and there's a lot to talk about, and we're all learning new things every day. As far as I know, we're the only podcast that's devoted completely to a bias for us format. And we love being able to bring those voices to you twice every month. This episode, I am excited to have Matt Cohen join us. Matt has been around the sales enablement community for a while now. He was a former leader of the Boston Sales Enablement Society chapter, and he currently is in Nashville, where he is helping to organize, I believe, our first Nashville chapter. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. Let's do uh, my favorite question. Hopefully it's uh, not too bad a question for you. It's the Jimmy Kimmel scenario. I'm sure you've heard it, right? So Kimmel <laughs> retires and you know somehow you've got the connections to get offered to host his show. Who do you bring on the show as your first guest and why then? It's a great question. Um, first off, I would be over the moon because I have thought of being a talk show host. I guess a lot of us enablement folks are charismatic that way, so that may not be a surprise. Okay, well, I'd say other than returning the favor and, and hosting you, I'd probably say Carol Dweck. I'm a serial reader of personal and professional development books, and I find her book, uh, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, to be really foundational to all other uh, development books the implications of having a growth versus fixed mindset on pretty much every facet of life. I, I could just talk about it all day. So probably her. All right. I don't think I've read that book. What was the title again? Mindset, the new psychology of success. I couldn't recommend it enough. All right. And, and, uh, Dweck, just the way it sounds, W, excuse me, D C K. Yep. That's right. You know, when you and I, you and I've actually had a chance to talk a couple of times recently and, and right now, um, you are looking at different opportunities for building enablement from the ground up. You, you know, I've even mm -hmm. heard you describe yourself as a builder. Mm -hmm. And so as you're looking around, um, what are you seeing as you talk to companies? And, and, you know, what is your opinion on when companies are really ready for enablement? Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, recently I've noticed while interviewing for my next role, I've observed that about half of my initial conversations with recruiters end up turning around and I'm educating them about what to be looking for. And I know this isn't unique to me. I've talked to enough enablers to hear this story time and time again. I don't think it's the recruiter's fault. There's a lot of mixed messaging in regard to what we do in enablement, what makes a good enabler when you should start hiring for it. And I think it's our job to educate them on those answers, at least our take on those answers. But, you know, there are some things I've noticed recently as far as trends that are informing when companies are hiring enablement and that we are being viewed more strategically in spite of okay. all the layoffs we're seeing. Um, 
first off, I would say, you know, I just five years ago, mm-hmm. companies were often hiring their first enablement person in series C or series D. Now you're seeing them start to do that series A or series B much earlier. Mm-hmm. I think less leaders are framing that first hire as a specialist or a manager and more often as a director or VP because they know building enablement is both strategic and tactical. And also I've seen many companies that make that mistake have to let Mm -hmm. the specialist go because they can't handle it. And then they have to rehire, which is incredibly expensive to have to do. Um, And then of course, as I'm sure you've seen, the JDs are starting to go well beyond just, you know, training and content creation. You certainly still see that. Mm but I'm starting to see a lot more kind of proactive gap analysis, shaping priorities with leadership. But my advice would be, you know, while these trends are encouraging, I think that companies need to find uh, a signal that they've found product market fit, right? So that when customer demand is outstripping their resources and they start to sense that exponential growth, you know, I've talked to some CROs to be a little more specific. I've heard a lot of them start to talk about when they have 10 to 12 AEs and, you know, they're having trouble repeating and scaling success, but they're thinking about hiring three to four AEs a quarter. Obviously, that's less the case right now. There's less hiring, but yep. you could still start to see that need for someone who can come in, build a framework and make things repeatable and, and scalable. And I think that's the time to really hire and, and start building enablement. Maybe as a baseline for the rest of our conversation, let's let's talk about um, how you view enablement, how you define it. There are, you know, you know what? I should, I should do this with ChatGPT sometime. Just say, you know, define enablement because there's probably <laughs> all kinds, all kinds of answers it's going to go and pull off from around the web. Uh, so let's focus on yours, right? I, I know you define it as an important first step in building, but but take us a little deeper on that. How do you look at it? Yeah, um, there's a lot of great definitions out there, and and several of which I have taken inspiration from in saying this. But my own definition is. Uh, their proactive identification of gaps in the buyer experience Mm -hmm. and shaping priorities to fill those gaps with the optimization of people, processes, and technology. So there's a few things I want to touch on there. Proactive, right? So enablement's not just putting out fires. It's not waiting until the field tells you it needs something. It's not a request center, right? It, It requires thinking like a CEO. You're focused on scale and continuous improvement, right? Skating to where the puck is going. Buyer experience, we're seeing more and more teams shift from sales enablement to revenue enablement because we know the buyer doesn't think of talking to sales and CS the next day. They're certainly not thinking I'm in stage one and now I'm in stage two, right? They're just talking to your company. And so they have to have a seamless experience all the way through. And if they're not enabled consistently, teams are not enabled consistently throughout that journey, you're going to have a disconnect and and that's going to negatively impact that experience. Shaping priorities. So this isn't just enablement priorities. I think enablement needs to have a seat at the table in defining key objectives because they should know what their revenue generating teams need more than anyone else in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, they're uniquely positioned cross-functionally to inform that. And then finally, you know, people process technology. Uh, I, I've heard, you know, the three P's, Eli Cohen, people process priorities. I've heard different things here. The reason I focus on this is I think it covers nicely the areas in which we operate. And a lot of companies get stuck here and they think this is enablement, just the tactics, just the training, just the content. But you know, people can be training. Um, mm-hmm. Sales process obviously falls under the process bucket. Technology could be, yes, adminning a tool, but more often than not, it's optimizing an entire sales tech stack 
right? Mm-hmm. And having a strategy there. You know, I'm just a fan of these three drivers because I think they highlight the cross-functional nature of enablement. You have to coordinate with HR, frontline managers, right? Optimizing operations, technology, and process can include many partnerships depending on the scope. And I think it's important to set up that definition when you first start because that's going to set the charter. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there to click on. So mm-hmm. uh, let's start off with foundational, you know, so, so you're coming in, let's assume, well, I actually, I'm going to throw a couple scenarios at you because I've encountered both of these and, and I, and you probably have too. One is there's no enablement. There's mm-hmm. none. And, and so you really do have a blank slate. The other one, and this is one that I've actually encountered two times now is there is there are enablement functions in place. And I'm using the word function specifically because they tend to be reactive. They tend to be doing, you know, e- even some things that are, in one case, honestly, party planning for the sales teams, right? Mm-hmm. Just, just, mm-hmm. Just, just different things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But there's not really sales enablement. There's not a strategy. There, there's certainly not a correlation back to business outcomes, that sort of thing. So pick a scenario, either one, and, and, you know, how do you start to determine where, you know, what's your starting point? Where do you begin? For the purposes of this conversation, I, I'm going to assume there's nothing in place related to enablement, you know, even okay. a sales process. However, to your point, Paul, like more often than not, there is. Ad hoc initiatives have already begun. I've certainly dealt mm-hmm. with that myself as well, you know, when, when they bring in that first enablement hire. Uh, and there are historical dynamics at play. So, you know, in this instance, you have to make sure you spend time thoroughly understanding those dynamics and closely align to your leadership uh, on the ideal playbook. This is where, you know, the kind of intangibles come into play as a good enabler. Uh, things like empathy, right? We, we and I'm stealing this from yeah. Covey, but, you know, we have to try to understand before being understood. Um, mm-hmm. Once you have their buy-in, you will have the air cover you need to potentially rework parts of this process that were done out of order. You have to keep in mind that your focus is serving your clients, which are the teams you support. So if any part of the process I'm going to cover is ineffective in the long run, it has to be reworked. And you know you have to be pro- proactive in identifying their needs, but it's always mm-hmm. a good compass um, if they feel that they're being supported. So now that I've, I've uh, given the disclosure, I would, to answer your question, strongly recommend with starting with the buyer journey. You'll get pulled into a lot of different directions when you're starting building enablement from scratch. You know, leaders are going to want you to organize training and onboard new hires, especially if it's a time of growth, implement technology. There's always going to be more urgent needs, but I'd recommend you really stand firm in the importance of defining the buyer's journey. It's because your buyer needs set the foundation for everything you do. So without understanding what matters to them, it's really far too easy to fall prey to over-focusing on an internal perspective um, if you just I, jump I in. Love hearing, yeah, I, I love hearing you say that. I, you know, I, I, when I, going back to my early days in enablement, one of the ways that I've, I've, I've looked at it is at the highest level, we, because we live in a customer experience economy, we all demand exceptional experiences with the vendors we choose to do business with. And why would our prospects or customers want any less? And so mm-hmm. enablement provides the things you talked about, right? Methodology, tools, uh, tech, and that sort of thing. But ultimately, mm-hmm. our goal is to enable those customer-facing teams to differentiate by how they sell and interact with the customer rather than trying to differentiate 
with product or price. Mm-hmm. Now, feel free to disagree with that. But I mean, that, that to me, ultimately, that's, right. that's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. If an enabler has trouble advocating for starting with the buyer journey, mm-hmm. it's important to touch on what you just covered, that it's the foundation for defining a buyer-centric sales process, which is the mm-hmm. foundation for everything else you're going to do in enablement, right? So a, a structured sales process leads to a consistent buyer experience, revenue predictability, mm-hmm and insight into gaps based on you know pipeline conversion. So if you're still running into roadblocks, you really need to revisit that definition and scope of enablement because there may not be alignment with what's required for proper enablement. You know, when it comes to creating a sales process, there's a lot involved with that, right? And, and uh, again, uh, referring to my disclosure, Sometimes there's going to be leaders who have been at the organization for a long time. There's going to be reps who've been at the organization for a long time who say, we already have our sales process, right? But nine times out of 10, it's in their heads, or even if it's on paper, it's vastly oversimplified. And mm-hmm. someone who's coming into the organization or possibly being promoted up, let's say from the SDR team, isn't going to be able to fully understand that and replicate it without really the managers having to spend a lot of time doing handholding. So I think- Can the, I add the, something to that? Yes, please. Um, which, which, which really just is, and how well is it being adopted? Mm-hmm. How, many, how many times have you gone into an organization and they say that, but nobody's nobody's really using it? They just it's it's lip lip service, right? That's absolutely right. Um, you know, it, or it's not it's not uh, hasn't been operationalized uh, mm-hmm. with the tech yeah, stack. There's no no accountability in one on ones. Um, yeah, I, I think when you're building the sales process, the the first thing that you want to do is you want to consult, again, you started with the buyer journey, right? So you want to consult customers to validate that buyer journey, or you're creating it in a silo, and the most experienced members of your go-to-market teams. And this is going to involve mapping out how the clients buy and expand your solution or you know service adoption over time. You're going to then interview those top performers from those teams to determine how they align to that buying process. So whether they're thinking of it as a separate buyer journey and sales process, I've had very effective reps that don't delineate that in their minds. The information's Mm -hmm. there and it's up to us as enablers to extract that from them and document it. Okay. Also, you know, discuss what you learn from the top performers with the leaders. So that's Mm going to start to shape distinct stages of that journey, identifying Mm -hmm. clear goals for each, so, you know, typically a sales process consists of five to seven steps that fall under. We've all heard these, these phases before, right? Awareness, interest, decision. Um, post sales can include onboarding, adoption, advocacy, or, or renewal, depending on how you frame that. Um, but the, those requirements, those goals for each stage are going to become your entry exit criteria. And that, to your point, Paul, that's going to become critical to operationalizing. Um, Because those are the requirements that you're going to actually put in tools or use for coaching. And then finally, you're going to want to work with marketing to align, you know, your sales content strategies to that sales process. That's usually later on, depending on the maturity of the organization, if they even have enough content to warrant that. But that's where you you really start to align sales and marketing that way and translating Mm -hmm. sales needs. What's the messaging they're going to need when? Um, And then getting feedback constantly. Mm -hmm. Right. So don't wait until yeah. you're ready to launch that process and enable everyone on it. Constantly right. iterate, align with your leaders, align with those people you interview initially, and that's going to lead to long-term success and adoption. 
and I promise not to get up on my soapbox for too long, but <laughs> please, please, anyone listening who creates product training or assets, keep the features at a minimum. Talk about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how buyers are going to use the products to solve specific problems, right? That's mm-hmm. what people care about. Um, and, 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 and the worst thing that I've seen is if you, if you enable reps to talk too much about features, a lot of buyers will immediately just pull up competition's website and all of a sudden you're in a feature by feature battle, which, yep. which never ends well. Right. So just, uh, I'm getting off the soapbox now, but when you talk about product training, <laughs> that's, that always comes to mind for me. Huge, um, so. huge. And, and if there was one common challenge that I've seen, um, through all the hyper growth at the startups that I've worked in enablement at, it, it's that. It's the shifting yep. from feature function to more of a solution cell, more of a platform cell. Mm-hmm. You see it time and time again. Uh, reps really struggle with that. They struggle with a buyer who, hey, we're in enablement, so we know what it's like to sell and we know what it's like to buy. I've been this mm-hmm. person. You push mm-hmm. for the demo in the first meeting. You want to see the product, right? Yep. Um, yep. They have to know how to diplomatically give the buyer the information they need, but also limit information so as not to overwhelm them and lead to indecision, right? Okay. And right. and so they have to tailor that demonstration later on by having that conversation. But yeah, anyway, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I certainly wasn't looking at you when I said that. It really was. <laughs> I, know. Just, I know. Just based on, uh, you know, I don't know, a couple decades of experience, not just in enablement and in sales and thinking of some of the ways that we were trained. So absolutely. All right. Yeah. OK, so what's next? So you've, you've gotten to this point. You yeah. understand that buyer's journey. You've mapped it. You've got some internal consensus. Now, what are you going to do? So once your buyer journey and sales process are defined, you have mm-hmm. great insight into what skills are needed to take a deal from lead to close to renewal. Mm -hmm. That's when it's time to take an inventory with your managers on the most prominent skill gaps you're seeing. And once you identify that, you can select the sales methodology. So Mm -hmm. I know you know this, Paul, but for our audience, uh, sales methodology is not the same as sales process. I've seen some pretty sophisticated people conflating these two things. So the sales process- I I never use them interchangeably. Yeah, glad to hear you say that. Yeah. You know, the sales process are the actions you take when selling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the sales methodology could be framed as the way you sell or the culture you have, the values you have around selling, not to be confused Mm -hmm. with value selling. But Mm -hmm. that's the way I kind of think, differentiate the two. Um, There are a lot of options with pros and cons. You know, I I think you and I could do a whole other podcast just on that. But, you know, the primary thing to keep in mind is that you have to be aligned with your go-to-market leaders on what matters the most based on those skill areas you've identified, those skill gaps you've identified. So if it's selling on value, uh, value selling could be an excellent choice. If you are going through that phase of uh, evolution that you and I were just talking about, trying to get away from feature function, connecting solutions to uh, persona-based challenges and problem statements, right? That's a great, Mm -hmm. great methodology for that. Challenger. Uh, that's a great one that if you're an emerging technology in an emerging category and you have to kind of push back on the buyer's potentially inaccurate view of your business or you know they're very comfortable with the status quo, great methodology for that. Medic or MedPick, you know, there could be an argument that this is more of a qualification framework. Um, oh, I, I think it definitely is. In yeah, fact, I, and, I'll be honest. I put Challenger in that bucket as well. But like I say, we could do a whole other podcast. On that. Yeah, yeah. I like Challenger. I'm not dissing Challenger. It's just it's it's You're anyway. Right. But yeah, keep going with MedPick. I completely agree with you. MedPick, it, 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 I love the precision that it can bring. 
mm-hmm. uh, when done done properly to that qualification process. Yes. But you're right. After that, how are you managing deal velocity? How are you project managing the evaluation? How are you negotiating? You know, just, that, that all just has to come from somewhere else. Right. And, and I think the simplicity of, of a qualification framework like Medic is appealing, mm-hmm. especially when you have a junior sales force that may just need help yep, with objective point. close criteria. And it's also great as a first initial kind of partial methodology, because I've seen organizations implemented along with value selling or along with challenger. And that hybrid model works really well because you have kind of the mindset and then the qualification criteria, right? Um, So, you know, ultimately just make sure to do your research, consult your network, keep the skills gaps you identified in mind. And while I, while evaluating methodologies, um, you know, that will often be viewed as a higher priority by revenue leaders, but you should concurrently work on defining role-based competencies too. Right. Mm-hmm. So now that you have a really good understanding of the biggest skill gaps and, you know, how you're going to leverage methodology to fix it, this means leveraging that understanding to identify what does it take to be an effective account executive, sales engineer, SDR, okay. right? And then aligning them to varying levels of seniority. So, you know, remember, skills are abilities specific to the role. Competencies may be transferable across functions that are more related to knowledge and behaviors Mm -hmm. that lead to success. So this could be things like grit, curiosity, resourcefulness, right? Mm -hmm. And so the real challenge comes into play when you're defining these with leadership and aligning with your HR team um, Mm -hmm. in defining, you know, what's level one, what's level two, what's level three, where do we expect an enterprise rep to be versus an SMB or commercial rep? But if you figure that out, it's going to be worth it because it's going to not only provide the building blocks for enablement down the road, it's going to make hiring and promotion practices more objective and also give you some great building blocks for coaching from a manager enablement perspective as well. Oh, I, I, yeah, I love, I, again, I love that. You're saying a lot of good stuff here. In my experience, if you don't have a methodology in place, what are you coaching to? If there mm-hmm. is no gold standard, for lack of a better word, of the customer experience that we're trying to offer and the way that we're talking about our products. Again, if I'm a sales leader, what am I coaching to? Mm-hmm. Probably not the right things. I'll just leave it at that. Um, mm-hmm. if, if we don't have this methodology in place, this common sales language, which is another benefit that I've seen in having a really strong methodology adoption yep. level. Yeah. We've both done this before. You know, there's a lot of work in customizing, implementing, and most of all, driving adoption and measurement of a methodology. It's just, it's just, um, in fact, I would even say yeah. in some ways, it's almost the easiest part is the customizing and the teaching, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, yep. because now it's, now it's time to, now it's time to make it work on the street. Um, That's right. So, so let's talk about that implementation. Yeah. Well, um, the next step in this process, if you had asked me where I would go Um, after selecting a methodology a year ago, I think my answer would have been different than it is now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all the hiring occurring then, uh, I would have recommended onboarding because it's a natural next step after mapping skills to align existing knowledge and resources. It's also the quickest path to progress. And what I mean by that is experienced reps at the company will typically be more entrenched in their way of doing things. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that makes adoption so hard. Um, you know, you'll hear their beating quota and therefore they don't need enablement. I've had managers tell me that we don't need to enable the enterprise. 
right? Mm -hmm. Sellers often miss that they could be even more effective by aligning with their buyer um, through the services that enablement's providing, but convincing them, them of that isn't easy, right? So I think that's where proving an increase in effectiveness by ramping your new hires faster than ever before gets them to take note, especially when you start to realize those new hires start to even surpass some of your more experienced reps. I've seen that happen. And if they don't notice, leadership will. You know, yeah. However, uh, with the relative decrease in hiring we're seeing, at least in tech, you need yeah. to focus more on continuous development, or, or you may have heard this called everboarding. Um, yeah. Spiraling so the, and in structure, we, we called it spiraling. Yeah. Oh, okay. I like that. Yeah. You know, I think the, the natural question would be, well, Matt, if I focus on continuous development uh, and I'm not doing onboarding, how do I build that credibility in the same way? Right. Well, I would say focus on first implementing your new agreed, newly agreed upon uh, playbook. Um, so to your point, Paul, like really double down on uh, driving adoption of the process and methodology. If you orchestrated those projects correctly, you're going to have leadership's backing. So your efforts mm -hmm. to train the field will have clear support that reps will notice. Usually that is a priority by leadership because it's expensive to buy a methodology uh, and it takes a lot of time to build a sales process. So um, once you get that program started, uh, focusing on that, I think it needs to be adaptable based on other gaps you find in the buyer experience that are revealed over time. So it should be created in close collaboration with cross-functional partners like product marketing, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, this could include a certification on a new pitch once you continue on past sales process and methodology. Uh, it could be improving discovery, right? It could be some sort of other sales skill. It should also take into account that your reps have limited mind share. So yeah, you have to point. differentiate between a few different levels. And so I've noticed this is a challenge for some enablers. We fall prey to helping our cross-functional partners drive awareness of their initiatives. But what's more important is, does sales need to know about this? Not, do my cross-functional yeah. partners have something to announce? Does sales need to know right. about this No, right that's now? a great point. Do they? Yeah. Years ago, I, I worked at a company with, with an amazing marketing leader. And one of the first indicators I had that she was as amazing as she was, was this big banner in the marketing department that said, how will sales use this? Uh -huh. and, and that was their mantra was mm -hmm. to, um, that was their mantra, right. To always be thinking about that and, and avoid yeah. creating stuff that, that they didn't have that answer for. So, yeah, I I've heard it said that, that. I, yes, I agree. And, and I've heard it said that enablement is the quote unquote bouncer to the field. Mm -hmm. I also think it's bi-directional. I think that they have to represent the voice of sales. You know, we talk about voice of customer. We don't talk about voice of sales enough, right? They're the boots on the ground. And so we have to translate their needs to everyone else in the organization. And so those levels, by the way, to circle back to that real quickly, um, I view them in, in kind of three levels. And I, I know that from an L&D perspective, there are differences uh, and there are more official frameworks. This is just mine. So yeah. awareness, competency, and practical application. Okay, so an awareness play would be, we have a new one pager. Right. And so yeah. there's probably a newsletter you can set up or a Slack drum beat to announce that sort of thing. Right. Yep. Um, so the rep can find it when they need it. Competency play. That's, you know, we need to change this behavior in the way you sell to be more effective. That's going to be the 
selling skills or the new pitch certification, right? And so that's Mm -hmm. where you may do a formal certification in your LMS or kind of a live round robin kind of delivery, right? Um, And then finally, practical application, pretty straightforward. Uh, That's where you really, I would strongly recommend a CI tool, even for an early stage startup. I know they can be expensive, but having some sort of recording software, because in this day and age, the remote first selling world we live in, Mm-hmm. Um, you can join calls, but you're going to have a real biased sample. Um, and so if you have some oh, yeah. sort of way to record calls, that's the only way you're going to be able to see this is really moving the needle and they're putting into practice Agreed. what we taught them. Agree. And, and one of the things that I love about a good CI tool is, okay, so we've been talking about methodology. One of the things that I've done or my, my team and I've done with success is we'll go in there and we'll put markers and tags in there. Things mm-hmm. that if they're using the methodology, phrases and things that we know that they'll be saying, at least, you know, on a fairly consistent basis. And it's just a, yeah. another way to see how well that methodology messaging is being adopted and understood and mm-hmm. received by customers, which is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, let's, let's wrap up with measurement, right? So you, so you talked about CI and that is definitely, I agree with you, a, a great way to do measurement. What else have you seen as effective or do you recommend people think about? Yeah, it, you're right. This is a lot of work. Uh, you know, if you've done all this, you've been very busy. I, I think depending on the size and complexity of the organization, you're talking six months to a year uh, into your build at this point. It varies a lot. You know, this is where I think I get uh, the most raised eyebrows when I'm talking to revenue leaders of, oh, you know, this is going to take six months or this is going to take, listen, this, this, this heavily depends on the number of AEs you have, right? I have worked with very large sales teams at my companies. If you have six AEs instead of 60, it's going to be proportional. It's going to be a proportional amount of work. You're going to be able to do it a lot faster. And as you get more comfortable doing this sort of thing, you're going to identify opportunities to work on some things concurrently. I mentioned doing competencies kind of in the background while you're evaluating sales methodologies, right? So um, to ensure long-term success, you have to measure the results of all your hard work, right? So this is going to, I I talked about proactive uh, gap analysis. You're going to have to continually, continually analyze the correlation between leading and lagging indicators to track rep effectiveness. Um, And so leading indicators could include things like time to ramp, which by the way, define ramp with your leaders, make sure that it's a consistent definition, (laughs) Um, training and certification completion, um, maybe even adoption of key messaging. If you have a CI tool, you you were just speaking to that a moment ago, Mm -hmm. lagging indicators could be things, you know, more traditionally analyzed like deal stage conversion, win rate, quota attainment, all of those. We have more opportunity than ever before with the amount of tools at our disposal to find meaningful leading indicators. I left out many. Um, you know, h- how are they sending content out of their content management solution? How are they viewing calls in their CI tool? That's actually a really interesting one during onboarding. And then your traditional leading indicators like pipeline build, meetings booked, calls, all these things. The reason this is important is it's not only self-serving and that it's going to help you prove the value of enablement. Mm -hmm. It's also going to help you identify where those red flags are, right? So that you're not just sitting on your hands waiting for sales leaders to tell you what the problems are. You have the data to back you up and it's Mm -hmm. going to give them the tools they need for proactive coaching. I hear all the time because of how under-resourced we are in the enablement world more often than not that manager enablement gets left by the wayside. 
Well, yeah, this gives you the talking points, right? Because they yeah. can see, hey, I've noticed that you aren't completing your training as much as our most effective reps are, or this particular mm-hmm. training was completed by this, you know, this percent of the field, and I want you to be one of them, right? Because it's important. Yep. That kind of thing um, is going to really help you drive adoption. And also, you know, I, I mentioned all the layoffs happening right now. You have to connect what you're doing to revenue. So it could be as simple as um, I heard this trick recently, and I'm a huge fan of it. So you know, not just leaving it at, at reducing ramp time, but if you have a rep who ramped a month sooner, and let's say your average sales cycle time is a month, they closed one more deal because of you. And then let's say you know your average deal size, $100,000. You made the company $100,000 ramping them a month sooner, right? Too often, I think those of us in enablement kind of assume that our revenue leaders just know the value of reducing ramp, but you got to take them all the way there. And I think that's going to really help you. And if you do it, you're going to be rightfully viewed as a strategic function. Their understanding of sales math um, really does vary. And, yes. and it goes and, and, and it goes back a bit to what you said about enabling the enablement for sales leaders and revenue leaders. Um, let's not assume that they know mm-hmm. that. Let's teach them that, or let's at least verify that they're comfortable with it. Um, in fact, a shameless plug: uh, we recently, just a, a few episodes back, had Terry Bird, who's the VP of Enablement at Vonage. You know, and this is mm-hmm. this is something we did a whole podcast episode on. So if people want to double click on that. They could, they could go back and see what Terry and his team are working on and where they're seeing some success. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, um, this has been a lot of fun. It's time to wrap and I'm not going to let you out of the studio without <laughs> our final question. Everybody plays ready. All right. You have the opportunity to go back in time. Maybe it's a hot tub. Don't know. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, uh, and, and, and you can coach some younger version of yourself, but you only get to cover one topic. Mm-hmm. What is that topic that you wish you'd understood earlier in your career or life? I would say to slow down. And, and I know that's not just unique to me. I, I try to, uh, pay it forward constantly. Those who have mentored me by mentoring those younger and I see this trend a lot, especially with new grads who are, you know, fresh into their career. Um, they're used to, you know, just getting that assignment done, just doing your homework, just getting to the next thing, getting to the next quarter semester. Accomplishments will come with focus and hard work, but you know, life is meant to be lived now. It's important to enjoy and learn from the present moment instead of getting lost in what you should have done differently or need to do next. And that applies to career as well, you know, prioritizing the work you're doing over just chasing titles and direct reports. Success has a much broader definition than that. Agreed. Thanks for sharing that. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. And and thanks for your time, both in preparing for this and, and the time you've just spent with me today. And that's a wrap, everybody. Uh, another episode of Stories from the Trenches in the books. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time and and interest in what we're doing here as well. And tune back in in two weeks for a new guest and a new topic. Thank you. Thanks for joining this episode of Stories from the Trenches. For more sales enablement resources, be sure to join the Sales Enablement Society at sesociety.org. That's S-E-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y dot O-R-G.